Let's Talk Home Repair is sponsored by Matriarchy Build, who provide tele-DIY services connecting homeowners to vetted pros for one-on-one video consultations. Visit matriarchybuild.com to get guidance on projects as small as a leaky faucet or as big as a home remodel. You can even book a session with Amy themselves. Visit www.matriarchybuild.com. Tele-DIY. Like telehealth? Yeah. Cool. I know. Hi, I'm Amy, general contractor. And I'm Alicia, homeowner, and we're talking home Home repair. repair. Today we have a special guest on the phone. Architect Grace Kim is on the phone. Welcome. Amy, tell us a little bit. Grace is from Schemata Workshop here in Seattle. I met her through the co-housing stuff that I'm I'm dabbling (laughs) in a little bit. we've been talking about. Um, One thing that I also want to talk to, to you about, Grace, is your involvement in the affordable housing Uh, stuff that's going on here in Seattle. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And would you like to, you know, just kind of give us a background on on who you are, what you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that great co-housing community that you have going on in Capitol Hill here in Seattle. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, My name is Grace Kim. I'm an architect and the owner of Schemata Workshop. It's a company I co-founded with my husband, who's my business partner and also an architect. Mike Mariano, and we live in a building that has nine families total. Um, It's a mixed-use building on 12th Avenue in Seattle, and we have nine apartments over a ground floor um, commercial space, which my office um, is occupying. And um, so I live, he and I are the mom and pop that live above the shop. Um, (laughs) Heck of a commute uh, too, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. It's been great through all the different crises and the um, and traffic issues that we've had in this in the city sure, of Los Angeles. Yeah, sure. So we we work on a lot of different things, uh, co-housing being one of those project types. And I can define that a little bit more in just a second. Uh, we also do, as Amy indicated, work on affordable housing, um, amongst other multifamily projects. But um, social equity and sustainability and community are the three key tenets of the firm. And those are the things that when you look at all of our projects, even though they might seem disparate and um, very unique and, and somewhat unrelated, those three things kind of tie all of them, all of the projects together. Mm, nice. So co-housing is a intentional neighborhood where people know each other and uh, live collaboratively. Um, and that is very much the situation that I live in that I just came downstairs from. Um, <laughs> we have 27, maybe 26 residents that live on site that range in age from six years to um, in their 70s. Wow. There are, I think, 10 children. Um, and I, I, I am waffling with the numbers because we just had some recent graduates and I can't remember who lives <laughs> if in they or stayed or not. The yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But there are 17 adults. And you know, it's, a, it's a great group of people. Uh, none of them, except for one of our neighbors who are, are our best friends, Everybody else is new that we met through the process of building this community. Oh, and you were um, part of the inception, right? Like, right. My husband and I started the community, bought the property, and then started the community a few years later. Um, and it was at the at the prodding of one of our neighbors that we started the community. Mm. Um, he, we were hosting salons, uh, kind of conversations about living in community, and he said, after like the third or fourth one, he's like don't you have property on Capitol Hill? Can't we start, can't we start talking about that? Um, And so that's what got us started um, on the path towards development. And we had planned to develop the property. It's just that in 2008, when we closed on the property, um, it was right before the big crash. Right. Um, 
that we now know as the Great Recession. And at the time, we knew that the banks were not lending on um, on real estate, especially for condos. And so we just sat on the property for a little while because we knew that the market wasn't ready. Mm. So even though the market wasn't fully ready in 2010, we went ahead and got started. Um, and it took us quite a long time. We moved in in 2016. And before our project, I had said to other co-housing groups, if you have land and you have an architect, you can get moved in in three years. Um, and that wasn't quite true. Um, I think <laughs> have we you seen that happen do, yet? We did. Actually, our first project that we did, first co-housing project, was that. Okay. Um, they had a contractor on board. They had the land. They came to us and they were moved in. They were finished within three years and the first people were moving in. Wow. But it was also 2009. So, you know, the market had tanked and everybody's housing prices had depreciated, but mm-hmm. they were finished. So I know that it's possible and I know that there are other groups, some other groups that have experienced this, but it's, I would say it's more the norm that that co-housing projects are somewhere between five and seven years from inception to move in. And that's if everything goes well. Mm-hmm. And I would say the, the, the reasons that ours took longer was were that we were very ambitious on what we thought we could do on 4,500 square feet of land. That is just amazing. Um, I know that Amy was telling me that. She goes, you know, it's on 45. I'm like, what? And then you told me how yeah. many families are there and how many folks are living there. That's pretty amazing design. I think I was in a house yeah. yesterday on Mercer Island, a client. And the, the house was probably 4,500 square feet. Oh. And, and I just can't imagine you having stuff and 27 <laughs> people in there. Oh, my word. Yeah. Well, so it's 4,500 square feet of land. The right. building itself is about 18,000 square feet. Five stories total. Oh, okay. Um, so it's it's four stories on the front and four stories on the alley. The alley is 12 feet above um, the street level. Um, so it it's technically five stories. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Wow, pretty amazing. And so I'm always fascinated by the covenants and like how did you create that and how did you find the people who agreed with how you wanted that co-housing to work and and live and how collaborative is it i know yours is built more like a a condo right so are there group areas so there are definitely group areas um meaning that everybody has their own private home so if you walk into our apartment it's just like anybody's apartment we've got a kitchen and bathroom and bedrooms and living room all the stuff that you would normally find in your own home um and then we have a fair amount of shared space. So there's about 900 square feet of interior common space. So that's another large kitchen mm. um, and dining area. So we eat together three times a week. You do. Okay. Um, and so there's a you know a space there in there for all of us to sit, all 27, sometimes up to 40. Uh-huh. Um, and we have a guest room. We have a, an extra laundry facility and then pantry space and a bunch of other things to go with that. We also have a fair amount of outdoor space. So just outside the common house, um, there the, there's a couple uh, French doors that open up onto a small patio. We had dinner out there last night. So it's a, it's a, a nice space to sort of have summer meals. Um, it gets used year round, um, 24, not 20, well, almost 24 seven. <laughs> now that you have um, teenagers, 24 seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by, by grownups and kids. So, yeah. you know, literally one of the kids will come out and shoot hoops at 10 o'clock at night. Um, <laughs> and there's kids, you know, playing out there um, at, at, as soon as they're up <laughs> in right. the house. Um, so, you know, and, and grownups will sit out there and chat. You know, people hang their laundry out or clean off their stand-up paddle boards or, you know, whatever. There's lot, always lots and lots of activity happening in the courtyard. And then in addition, we have space on the roof. Um, we have mm. half of the building, sort of the front half that is lower, that faces the uh, 12th Avenue. 
we've got a rooftop farm, so a fair number of raised beds, a fair number being all that covers the roof. And then there's a little sitting area up there. So that also gets quite a bit of use. And then up at the very top, we have a little area that we call the crow's nest. So it's a little mm. landing outside of the stairwell that has a you know even better view because um, we're one floor up that we look can look out over over the, our roof deck, but also um, out over the city and to downtown. Um, so there's quite a bit of common area. In terms of working collaboratively, um, we even though we were the founders and started the community, the policies and the governance of how we operate um, were all developed by the community together as they gathered. Oh, okay. um, so we had the vision of live in a, an urban neighborhood and, and live collaboratively in this way. That was the vision that we set forward and everything else really came as a result of the people that joined us. We also set out the expectation that we would like to have meals together three times a week. Right. Um, and so aside from that, the way that we, we work, um, we're not, we're not quite a condo and I'm, you know, I don't want to really go down the rabbit hole of, of our ownership structure, sure, but basically sure, yeah. we're, you know, in, in a nutshell, we are a LLC that um, has members, all of the nine households are members and we operate the building and each of us has a, a lease with the building. Um, so we rent back. Um, and so really it's a no equity um, model. Uh, we are trying to make it affordable so that new families, if and when they come, um, we haven't had any turnover in six years, mm, but wow. if new families were to come in, that we would be able, they would be able to join at the same low rate that members joined our community. Oh, um, interesting. So we're trying to, we were trying to create a model that would be sustainable from a long-term standpoint and not raising, in our case, rents, but more importantly, raising home values. We have talked about since the beginning that this is not a real estate investment. Right. Um, that it's really something to, that affords housing stability for folks. It's it's a non-capitalist way to think about. We're we're thinking about home as community, right, and as a place of belonging and safety, not as a real estate transaction. And so it really changes the tenor of how people think about where they are living and, and invest in in the community because they're building social capital, right? They're not building financial capital. That's great. I love that. That is amazing. That is just, That's great. That's just awesome. Yeah. For the three times a a week that you're supposed to eat together. What's the percentage of participation in that? I assume, you know, because people have their lives, so they can't make it. But mm -hmm. what's the expectation of, of one living in that community? Mm -hmm. So the expectation is is that every every adult cooks. Okay. That's the only expectation that we set out. But I would say from a, who shows up at dinner, pretty much everybody that's in the building shows up for dinner. Mm. Um, and it's and I think it's largely because we're, we are such a small group, but also just because of the convenience. I mean, mm -hmm. if you know that every other night you could just come home, walk into dinner, and then leave and not have to do anything. It's oh, pretty, my God, that'd be great. It's pretty convenient. Right? <laughs> and you're, you're, not, you're not having to pay, right? I mean, you do. And we don't, and we, no, we don't. Actually, we don't exchange money. Because we are all busy, we said, let's just, let's not make this more complicated for ourselves. Right. Um, there's lots of co-housing communities that have an elaborate system of turn in your receipts and tell us how many people there were right. and divide up the money. And, you know, and some communities have each meal be the price of that actual ingredients and other people, other communities have a set price for the whole thing, um, no matter what's served. And so for us, we were just like, let's not <laughs> deal with that. Um, right. And that way it gives flexibility to the cook if they just change their mind at the last minute or they're, uh. um, you know, they want to make something special then they can, but really it allows people with different budgets and different cooking styles to have flexibility. So if you want to make a meal that costs $50 because you've bought a bunch of potatoes and, and fixings for a big potato bar, great. You can do that. Or if you want to go all out and buy, you know, um, 
salmon and um, and steaks, um, and you want to do something fun to celebrate, you can do that. And because nobody's exchanging money, it's it makes it lo- low stress, right? Nobody has yeah. to justify why they want to spend a certain amount more. Or um, there's like I've heard so many strange things from communities where it's like, oh, we know so and so's cooking, and they always have an expensive meal, so we're not going to go tonight. Like, right. That's so oh, sad wow. and unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's just rolled into the lease? Nope. The person who pays or the person who is lead cook is responsible for setting the menu, shopping, and then leading the cooking for the meal. So oh, okay. In that way, you just you don't have to deal with any money exchange. And and responsibility, what you're doing it maybe once a month, once every two months or so? We have cook teams of three and we're on a two-week rotation. So every two weeks I need to help with the cook team, but every six weeks – because there's three adults, mm-hmm. it's every six weeks that I have to lead them at the meal. Oh, that's not so. Good. So it's pretty great. It's like in six weeks, I have to lead once. I have to help help my team twice, and then the rest of the time, I just show up. Right. <laughs> wow. It's like going going out for twelve times, and it only costs you a hundred bucks. Right. <laughs> right. That's exactly. not bad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, it works out really great. And it's the funny thing is when we first moved in, there would be funny situations of like, oh, I we just made dinner, so we're not coming down. Um, you know, because we would forget what day is are we doing this? Because we do it on a rotation of Monday, oh. Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. Oh, got that it. way, if people have like standing, you know, things happening that they don't miss every single uh-huh. the meal every, every single week. Mm-hmm. And then somebody said, "Oh, wait! If you just think about it, like we we eat every other night. So did we eat dinner together last night? No. Okay, then we have dinner tonight, mm-hmm. right? And we never and we never eat on Saturdays. So it's really easy to figure out um, what the meal." You know, rotation, oh, rotation is. is right, especially yeah. if you participate more. Right, then you know. <laughs> yeah. right. And even if you don't, even if you don't show up for dinner that night, like there's plenty of times I have evening meetings or something's going on after, right after work, um, and so I will just ask for a late plate. So either I come home at seven, our meals are at six thirty. So if I get if I get there at seven, I might catch the t- tail end of it. Sometimes even at seven thirty, you might catch the tail end of it. But otherwise, there's a you know a plate sitting there waiting for you. And if I've already eaten because I'm going out or something, I'll just take it for lunch the next day. Oh, that's great. That's outstanding. That's you See, must don't be. you want to do that, Alicia? Only if Grace is running it. Well, we can <laughs> talk to her as long about as she it. designs that. I mean, <laughs> no, that sounds wonderful. Can we move over into the affordable, your participation in affordable housing? Are you working with the city on projects or just within sure. the, the projects that you're commercially part of? So um, we work on affordable housing, and I'm, I'm defining that as um, housing that is subsidized through the government, whether it's state, city, county, or federal. And so we work with nonprofit housing developers that are receiving the public subsidy. We work with public housing authorities, and that's where the affordability comes in. Those homes and those buildings are 100% affordable. And then there's some, um, we do some limited amount of market rate housing, um, and that's housing that is for anybody and everybody. But they oftentimes, those developers will take what's called the multifamily tax exemption program. Um, And so that requires them to provide 20% of the units that are affordable. And when I say affordable, that's affordable for families that are earning somewhere between 60 and 80% of area median income. It's usually 60% and under, Mm -hmm. um, but every now and then there will be some, somebody that might want to do affordability at at 80%. And that starts to, you know, somewhere between 60 and 120 is actually workforce housing. And it's sort of the missing middle that nobody is building for because there's not, there isn't the public subsidy to do the 80% and, and higher. Right. Anything above 60%, there's there's basically no public subsidy for. And, in, and, and that might seem low, but because we 
are, you know, not only just Seattle, but also Redmond and the east side, the area median income is quite high oh, in, yeah. in King County. Right. Um, so 60%, uh, 80%, that's a lot of working professionals. Um, you know, most of the young architects in town are at that, at, at the 60 to 80%, when, especially when they're, if they're single. Um, and it has to do with, you know, how many people in the household, how many adults in the household and how many children in the household. So my husband always likes to say, as much as we have, you know, would love our daughter to pay rent, she's only 14. Um, so, you know, the reality is we're a three-person household that only has two incomes. Right. And if you're a single parent, you know, and have two children, then you're a three-person household on one income. See, the city of Seattle and, and, and most parts of King County are not affordable any longer. Oh, I totally, I totally see that. For somebody who's, you know, looking to purchase, you know, there's either, there's nothing out there, absolutely mm-hmm. nothing out there yeah. that yeah. I could afford. Yeah. So, yeah. So is there... You talked about the missing middle, and that was a term that I had never heard of up until, you know, a year or so ago. Can you explain a little bit more about that? And, and is there anything that, that people are doing to get that included in these, you know, federal subsidies or, or, or state or – because it's – I mean, that's a huge chunk of our population, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. huge chunk mm-hmm. of our population. It's like, what, what are we going to do about that? And is there yeah. anything being done? Yeah, there's actually lots being done. Um, the missing middle is basically, if you think about our, and, the, and this goes back, and I'll try not to get too much into the history and too wonky about it. Missing oh, middle is a, a don't thing. worry about getting I, too wonky. I love, <laughs> I love me some city wonk. <laughs> so missing middle is a, a planning term, and it's been around for a little while. But it's basically talking about the fact that affordable housing, as I said, is really targeting the households earning 60% of the area median income and lower. And then the marketplace does just fine with the, the high-end market rate. So a lot of the market rate apartment buildings that are out there are really gearing and targeting the population that can earn 100 or probably even more like 120% AMI and higher, mm-hmm. right? So there's the high end and the low end. And everybody in the middle, so all of the, the, the folks that are working that are you know holding down good jobs, whether they're restaurant workers or hospital workers or um, small business owners. Teachers, small business owners, contractors, like there's lots of people in the middle. And if you think about it, it's really the people that are in the middle class, the the middle class that used to be the working class, blue collar jobs, um, the trade building trades. Mm -hmm. As we made a push in our nation to go to higher education for everybody, the goal for every high school child to graduate high school and go to college, we basically ensured that we would have no middle class. Right. Right. And so we've worked our way towards that. So we have this huge gap between lo- low and moderate income house- households and those that have high households and everybody in between, which there are still lots of people in the in between. Mm-hmm. They have no way to find housing. Right. And, and we haven't increased our housing stock. We have locked up our city in terms of land use and zoning such that all of the, the single family neighborhoods are sort of protected and preserved and precious. So that means that all of the housing in our city has to be built in our urban villages. And that has led to huge amounts of disparity mm-hmm. in terms of home ownership and who has access. But it also means that there is a lot of there is a lot of demand and not enough supply. And right now you asked about what's, what are people doing. I would say there isn't any funding that's happening for the missing middle, but there are lots of cities, Seattle included, trying to figure out how do we address the missing middle. Um, and I would say for all the listeners that are out there, Right now, Seattle is in the midst of updating their comprehensive plan. And this is our opportunity to really make sure that the city's guiding document is geared towards helping to produce more housing to address the missing middle. 
Um, and the missing middle can be looked at two ways, from an income band, but also from uh, housing typologies, the types of structures that are built. Mm-hmm. So right now, every, you know, it's either you live in a single family house on a 5,000 square foot lot or bigger. And I know that there are some you know, examples of 3,600 and smaller size lots. But generally speaking, the city is zoned for 5,000 square feet for a single family house. Or it's designed to be, um, you know, commercial development built out to the property lines um, and ideally built out to something like five to seven stories tall. Mm. And there's really not a lot in between. There's there's definitely things happening in between in the in what's called the low rise zones. If you you know go into a neighborhood like Ballard or parts of the central area, there's there's pockets around the city where you see like tons and tons of townhomes being built. Mm-hmm. Those neighborhoods are probably zoned low rise, and that's sort of a transitional zone between the single family house and the um, the large scale apartment buildings. And that's the, really the only thing that's being built is those three categories. And if you think about in older neighborhoods, single family neighborhoods, you might run across a little like brick or Tudor styled bungalow court is what they're often called. Mm-hmm. Or, right. So and they're 100 years old and they are so cute and quaint. <laughs> those things are not legal anymore. You can't build that today. Why? But, because the zoning doesn't allow in that neighborhood. You're, you're only allowed to bring a single dwelling unit a single house occupied by a single family on that lot. And there's even less restrictions. Like if you're a household that has more than eight unrelated people, then you're not a single family. The mm. city defines that for us. Right. They've done a little bit of, of revamping of that with the relaxing the, the ADU and DADU mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Um, zoning part of it. I've got a, an empty lot next to me. It used to be a house, but they came in and bulldozed it down. And, and I, I looked at the permit and they're putting the house, then they're going to have an ADU as part of that, mm-hmm. and then a DADU mm-hmm. in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a typical, it's probably a 5,000 square foot lot. So that, that's getting some kind of density, mm-hmm. but I right. mean, so they're, they're working on it. Can you, can you explain, yeah. uh, I know what the comp- comprehensive plan is, but I don't know if, if people in general would know what that means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how often it happens. Right. 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 So the comprehensive plan is um, the city's guiding document to help guide policy, legislation, um, land use planning, um, the maps, all of that stuff. And it's not only addressing the built development and built environment, but it's also addressing things like transportation and the environment and, and a bunch of other things. And it's updated every year on a sort of amendment basis. Mm. And then every seven years, there is a I think it's every 10 years, but it, the, the process starts every seven years. Right. There's a big, long process that's usually like two or three years long that does a major overhaul of the comprehensive plan. And our comprehensive planning work started, I think, in 1998 in, in the city. Mm. And so every 10 years or so, it has been updated. We are in the midst, I think probably in year two of the comp plan update for this year. The previous one, I served on the planning commission during that time period. And we made a big push. The planning commission is the steward of the comprehensive plan. Mm. And our planning commission in Seattle doesn't review actual individual buildings. That is the role of design review and the Seattle Design Commission. Mm -hmm. The Seattle planning commission just looks at the comprehensive plan and makes sure that they are stewarding that, making sure that the mayor and the city council is doing their work in accordance with the the comprehensive plan. And it's the document that, that gives the council and the mayor and the people making the the rules, basically, um, whether they be in the land use and, and planning department or whether they be at, um, at other departments within the city, it gives them sort of the 
the framework and the guiding kind of principles of how we're going to progress in our city. So, so who's typically on that that commission. comprehensive? Yeah, who's who's on that commission? How do you get? How involved? do they get there? Right. It's um, so the planning commission has members um, that are appointed by the mayor, by city council, and then there are a couple seats that are appointed by the commission themselves. Um, they are a, sort of an independent body, and while they sort of generally live under the planning and community development department of planning and community development, they are sort of a, a separate entity and have been chartered that way. So to serve on that the commission, you need to be appointed generally by the mayor or the, the council. They have the most number of seats, and I don't remember how that works. Sure. Um, but if you go to the planning commission website, you could probably find information out about that. Um, it's two-year terms, and the general public can attend planning commission meetings. They're open to the public, and they have two uh, committees, subcommittees. One is it's usually housing and neighborhoods and then land use and transportation, and they meet once a month, and you can attend those meetings. So there's plenty of opportunity to to listen in, to provide public comment. The planning commission is not a decision-making body. They are a body that provides guidance and will express opinion and offer support to council members and the mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we work they they work closely with the planning staff at the city. So it's the city council and the mayor that make make the final decisions on that. Final decision, yeah. Okay, we'll we'll provide them letters of of, of guidance or recommendation, and then it's really up to them to decide if they're going to take that guidance or not. How are you feeling about the the trending of the commission? Are you feeling, you know, looking at these particular housing challenges? Mm-hmm. Are you feeling like the commission is coming up with good solutions on that? I think they are. I've been off the commission. I served for eight years, um, oh, okay. much oh. longer than I was supposed to. Um, <laughs> actually, it's it's three-year terms, not two-year terms, now that I think about it. So it's three-year terms, and I was finishing out somebody's um, vacated seat, so I ended up staying on longer. And then we had some transition issues with uh, reappointments, mm. so I ended up staying on longer. So I, so I haven't been serving for a couple of years now, mm-hmm. um, but I have a few friends that are serving on the commission, and I would say that they continue to tackle the difficult issues. So like when you talked about the ADUs and DADUs, the ADUs and PADUs, mm-hmm. um, that ordinance came before the planning commission. Um, the planning commission is um, look is is heavily paying attention to and, and commenting on the comprehensive plan. And there are you know lots of discussions at hand about how to address the missing middle, the whole renaming of the single family zoning designation. Um, I think that the change towards moving away from that designation mm-hmm. and calling it something more that's relative to what's actually happening there. It's not single families living in these, these structures. It's, um, it's a residential designation. Um, and that's what they're moving towards. And I think that's what they're probably promoting in the change in the comprehensive plan. I will say that the comprehensive plan, when it was started, um, was really, um, I'm sure the founders of that thought they were doing something that was very um, progressive and in service of the residents, but really the underpinnings are very racial. Oh. Um, if you think about redlining and all of that, um, and how that has led to the inequities in um, in our society of who has wealth and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. The original comprehensive plan was set up in a way to protect homeowners. Mm-hmm. Like literally there was language in the first documents that said the planning document were to protect home ownership. Um, and we all know who owned homes at that time. Right. In right. right. Wow. Um, and right. so the last update was there was a big push um, that we helped lead, that I helped lead to really focus on race and equity. And so trying to remove all of those references to prioritizing home ownership and really thinking about how does the city evolve in a way that is equitable for people of all backgrounds, of all income levels. 
Yeah, and keeping the diversity right. both ethnic but also socioeconomic. Socioeconomic and ability. Yeah. Right. We always forget about the disability population, but just making sure that the city is a place that everybody can live in. Right. Yeah. There's there's lots of good work happening. And so um, who should we bother the most, the council, the mayor, or really getting down on the kind of wonky level and going to commission meetings or paying attention to what they're mm-hmm. doing? Where do you think the the biggest bang for the buck is for a regular citizen? For a regular citizen, it's probably just bugging the council members. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's the easiest access, meaning, you know, the mayor's office, while they, they should be um, paying attention to all the citizens, there's lots of things going on. And to get their ear, it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. The, the council members, if you can get their ear, especially like if if you have a known niche, right? Like if you are mm. uh, somebody from Wallingford and you really know what's going on in Wallingford and you know that there's that, that there might be a faction like right now in Wallingford, they're trying to pass this preservation of um, historic homes and really craftsman bungalows that were built out of Sears kits, Sears oh, kit yeah. plans. Those are not things to be preserved. They're not unique to Seattle or to Wallingford. Mm. Um, but there's a contingency out there that's trying to preserve that. So, Interesting. you know, if you, if you happen to be a neighbor in Wallingford or, you know, I'm just using this as an example right. that maybe have a counter counter viewpoint or um, are part of a larger organization, whether, you know, it's one of the many different groups um, in Wallingford and you are consistently talking with the council member there. And I don't remember who that is because I don't live in Wallingford. Right. But um, <laughs> right. that's a way to say, hey, I'm, I'm a, an alternate voice and I this is my background and this is my relationship to the neighborhood. If there is a deep, meaningful relationship and the things that you're sharing are just different points of view, oftentimes the legislative aides will contact you and say, hey, this is happening. And what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Right. So to, to be that person. And it might be that you need to attend. You, know, you can't just do this sitting in your, you know, your basement and not paying attention to things like it does mean that you need to get involved and attend meetings in the community or to attend the planning commission meetings to find out what's going on. And luckily now everything's online. So you can listen to those from your basement if you choose. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a great way to become an expert in something and then be sort of a trusted advisor to the council member. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea, and and there there's room for it. You know, I think there's yep. a lot of people who aren't involved, and so if you do become involved, you have a stronger voice than you might think. Definitely so, and I think this is an area where people are like, oh, my voice doesn't matter. It does matter. Mm-hmm. That's where I am at. Like, nobody cares what I think. It, yeah, and, and the, it might feel that way if you're doing it alone, right? Right. Okay. If Amy is speaking for Amy herself, then that might be not enough, but if you're involved so I'm involved with um, the Housing Development Consortium, which, which is an advocacy organization for the affordable housing industry. Mm-hmm. So Grace came as a private individual. I might not get any um, air t- yeah, airtime, leverage, whatever. But when I'm working on the on the behalf of a, the coalition or you know, when we come out together, it is hundreds of organizations that are trying to create affordable housing in our in our city and county. You know, that we have more voice. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, other things that are happening right now, the Seattle levy is going to be, is coming up for renewal and it comes up for renewal, I think every seven years as well. Seattle housing levy is a unique tool that the citizens of Seattle have said time and time again, we believe that there should be affordable housing in Seattle. And so we're going to pay, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and, and pay money towards this levy. It has been renewed every year for the last 28 years or so wow. and renewed at higher levels. It is a tool that we have to create affordable housing in Seattle. And finally, other cities in King County are trying to emulate this because they're realizing the the power of it and the efficacy 
I mean, I will say it's not the magic bullet. Like it is a great resource that we have and that cities all across the nation are envious of us for having, mm. but it doesn't even come close to addressing the housing need that we have in our city. I think that's what's a little frustrating is, like you've just bragged, and rightfully so, we've, for the last 28 years, we've kept it going, and yet we still see the headlines of we still have affordable housing mm -hmm. problems over and over again. Can you give me a quick example? This is unfair to do, but... But you're going to do it anyway? Yeah, of course I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, so what has the lev levy helped us keep away from? So if it didn't exist, then yeah. that would mean that there's that many more thousands of families that wouldn't have housing, that would be living on the streets, that would be in uh, more dire situations. Mm -hmm. So the levy has been effective in producing housing units. It's just that our demand has far surpassed what that supply is. 2035 is the current comp plan document. Mm. And in that document, there was a projected growth of how fast the city was going to grow in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And they hit that number in three or four years. <laughs> right. So right. like the city has been growing in the region, has grown growing in astounding ways, right? If you think about all of the thousands of jobs that are created by the tech industry in our city every day, mm -hmm. right? All of those new people coming and there's not the supply to make up for it. I remember like, I think it was maybe five or six years ago, the, um, the Housing Development Consortium staff, our policy staff, did a study and said, okay, if today we were to meet the affordable housing, just the affordable housing demand that existed, we would need to produce 50,000 units today. In King County or that's Seattle? In, in King County. King County, yeah. Wow. Right. So that's, that's just the affordable housing week. Right. Right. And so if you think about the housing production, like... It's great that the, that we have Seattle Levy and that money gets leveraged with the state money, with the county money mm -hmm. to produce, you know, maybe a couple thousand units in a year. Wow. And, and that is great. Like in other cities, it's a couple hundreds, right? Right. So the fact right. that we're doing a couple thousand, of, you know, even if we're doing 5,000, that's just a tip of the iceberg. And, and that demand, it doesn't, it's not like that's the 50,000 is the goal and then we're done. Right. That goal right. Keeps, keeps going as, as, as we have more housing. And as much as market rate, you know, people are like, oh, there's so many new apartments, you know, when is this ever going to end? It's not going to end until we get enough people housed. Mm -hmm. And when we don't produce those, that housing, it means that everybody rents down. Mm -hmm. right? Right. So the, the two young people that move out from the East Coast that are working in the tech jobs at Amazon or, or wherever, they can afford to pay a lot more in rent, right? They can afford to pay probably five or $6,000 a month in rent oh. combined. Mm -hmm. And yet the parents are telling them, oh, you just graduated from school. You should save your money. And, you know, and, and, and people's sense of what they should pay mm -hmm. for rent is something more like two or $3,000, right. right, for a two-bedroom apartment. And so that means that the people that can only afford to pay two or three thousand dollars are renting down to the apartments that are fourteen to eighteen hundred dollars. The okay. people that can only afford to pay that are being pushed down to look for the apartments that are, you know, twelve to fourteen hundred dollars. So everybody is renting down because there's not enough supply. So when people say that we can't build our way out of this, we can, and that's the only way out of this. Okay. Until there is enough enough supply to meet that demand, everyone is gonna rent down. Like, but how do we keep the apartments in the acceptable renting range. Yeah, I mean that's the interesting about this current initiative that's out. There's a current initiative on on social housing, mm -hmm. and at at face value, I love that idea. We need to have more housing produced to address the 80 to 120 percent people. And in that income range, there's actually profit to be made. Mm -hmm. The problem is our society, whether it's people that own homes and want to sell 
or whether it's people building apartment buildings and need, and renting them out, everyone's out to make a buck. Everyone is is out to make as much money as possible, right? So when you when people go to sell their house, they don't think, oh, I'm going to sell this house at a reasonable increase off my initial investment mm. because it's real estate investment. They're looking to maximize the return and get as much money as possible. Sure. Same with the same with the developers or pe- even property owners, people that have owned their their apartment buildings for 30 years, they are probably paid off. So really the rent that they're collecting is additional income for them. Right. And instead of saying we can make a reasonable amount of money, they're saying we can make the most amount of money. So if if they've paid off the building and they had been charging $2000 a month for rent, they could just keep the rents at $2000. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. right, right. But instead they look at the marketplace and say, "Oh, look at that. Our our units are larger because they were built Mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if we do a little bit of renovation, spend a million dollars and, you know, spiffy up the building, we can rent those same apartments for three or $4,000. Right. Wouldn't we want to do that? Right? right. So everyone's jacking up the rents. So, so as a, as a budding real estate developer, I know in my <laughs> dreams, right? So you're, you're saying that, um, that there is a way to, for me to build affordable housing and then come out on the other side with, you know, I haven't lost money. Well, or Mm -hmm. you can even make a reasonable amount Mm -hmm. rather than there's so much margin in there to play with Mm -hmm. that do you need to make 500% on your investment or is it okay that Mm -hmm. you just make, and obviously you've taken risk, so you want to make a a pretty good, you know, return on it so that you can do the next project. But Mm -hmm. rather than pushing it, like you say, to the numbers of the 80 to 100% right, right. folks. Just like, okay, what does that middle need to pay? Can I still make that prof- profitable? Oh, mm-hmm. actually, yes, I can. See, that's mm-hmm. what that's what I'm looking to do. It's like yeah. I'm looking to the end of the project where I can stand back and say, I produced this and it's affordable to somebody. I've recouped my numbers. And more maybe, so, it's okay that maybe you make a profit. Put a, maybe put a little bit so that, yes, I can do the next project, right? And mm-hmm. be able to have that. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. And I don't mm-hmm. know if there's other people. But I have, I've been under the impression that it's like, oh, the numbers just don't pan out. Well, not thinking mm-hmm. about, oh, but I'm not going to make my 50% profit. It's like, well, that's not, mm-hmm. my, that's not my point. That's not why mm-hmm. I'm doing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And are yeah. you saying, um, Grace, that this initiative tries to incentivize that? Or I'm sorry, we interrupted so, you on our- yeah. yeah, we did. <laughs> sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Um, so I think the current initiative is a little bit confusing. Okay. Um, when I first saw it, I thought that it was um, wanting to create that missing middle 80 to 120% AMI housing, mm-hmm. um, which is exactly what we need and which used to, that, that is provided by governments in other countries. It is what our government dismantled and, and segregated and created public housing from um, back in the in the 50s and 60s. And you can read lots about that um, in Richard Rothstein's book, um, I'm blanking on the name, The Color the color of Law. Mm, I'll have to think about the name. What was um, the author's name again? Richard Rothstein. Okay. Yeah, if you can Google it while we're talking. Sure. Um, but basically, the social housing initiative, while on surface, I, I totally agree with it and think it's the right thing to do. They're wanting to take money they're saying the market rates developers should not have a role in this. And I think that that's exactly wrong. I think that it needs to be, it needs to be the marketplace does have a role in this. They have a huge role in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what the, what the initiative is saying, let's, let's keep them out of it and let's create a separate entity to produce social housing. And we're going to take money from the other funding sources that currently exist. 
which is basically the affordable housing sector. Mm-hmm. So basically they're saying, we're going to take money for the affordable housing sector because we think that we can do better and, and serve this, this other group. And, and I'm not saying that they, it's not that they can't do better, but we, we don't have enough resources at the 60% and under right. to even build what the demand is. How can we then take that and then further divide it up to yeah. make the missing middle, right? right. So, yeah. and, they, and they're saying we can, we have bonding authority, we can do this and that. It's like, yes, and the bonding authority has limits yeah. and it doesn't seem feasible. Basically, when I look at the bonding authority, it's like hedge funds. They're yeah. basically bonding against the future future thing that they will have. They don't have anything right now. Right. So they're betting on the apartments that they will create. And I think that there's there's definitely a place for bonding. That happens all the time at the state level to fund affordable housing. Right. But we need other sources and other ways to do this. So it's take it we need to have all the tools, not just some tools. All the tools and and like you were saying earlier, how can we change our mind? Very difficult in America to do it, but it's saying, can we be reasonable in profitability? Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But yes, it was The Color of Law. That book was The Color yeah. of Law. Yes, The Color of Law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it, it's a great book because the, the book talks about how we moved away from, from social housing, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, 50s. It used to be for everybody. Everybody, if you had a, you know, a working class job right. and worked in a factory or worked, you know, for a big company, um, you could work, you could live in social housing and it was not stigmatized. Everybody did. Right. right? That, was a, that was a part of your life. And a, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. The mill houses. And there were, and yeah. there were communities there and, and they had, you know, very much strong sense of community. It was only when we started to get into redlighting and racial segregation that, you know, and then, and then basically creating new homes out in the suburbs for white folks to move to. Mm-hmm. That's when the, the, the population started changing and, and who was being served by social housing, and then public housing um, became what it is today. Interesting. It's a great read. Yeah. Well, Grace, we won't take up any more of your time. Thank you so much this for, was, this was absolutely this fascinating. Really great, yeah, I, I can't wait to listen to it. So, yeah, it's been great. And <laughs> I've got commission to, meetings to go to. I I've do. got a book I, to read. I, I got <laughs> I got stuff to do. <laughs> I do. We all yeah. have stuff to do. Yeah, yes. right, right. yeah. Would love to get together with you for a cup of coffee and, and just talk more about this because I think I, I want to get involved. I want to. I want to. I want to build affordable housing. I don't, yeah. I don't care about the profit. I I just want to, you know, be able to, to to provide that. So, thank you so much again for joining us. It has been absolutely wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by AmyWorks, a residential remodeling contractor in Seattle. We want to help you realize the dream of your next kitchen, bath, or basement remodel. Check out some of our work on our website, amyworks.com. Give us a call at 206-478-2019 or send us an email at help at amyworks.com.